Welcome to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This Clinician's Roundtable segment is sponsored by Omnia Education's first annual Fertility Nurses Forum. It's important for fertility nurses to ensure that the patient is well informed of the probable cause or causes of her infertility, the treatment options available, and the risks and benefits from those therapies. Program Director of the upcoming Fertility Nurses Forum, Monica Moore, is here to address some common questions and issues facing fertility nurses. Monica is a nurse practitioner and a nurse manager at RMA of Connecticut in Norwalk, Connecticut. First of all, Monica, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's really good to have you here, and I wanted to ask you to start off, what are some of the main causes of infertility? Well, male factor infertility accounts for about 20 to 30 percent of infertility and then contributes another 10 to 20 percent because what we see is there's about 40 percent that's male factor, 40 percent that's female factor, and about 20 percent that includes both couples. So, um, you know, we address this a lot with patients that it's nobody's quote-unquote fault that it's pretty similar whether it's male factor, female factor, or both. Um, sometimes we never find a cause for infertility, but the main cause, I would say, is ovulatory disorders, which account for about 40% of infertility. And what we see a lot in reproductive endocrinology and infertility centers like ours is that many women are delaying childbearing. So the incidence of age-related fertility is on the rise, and we can't, you know, quote-unquote cure age-related infertility. We can just manage it by using some of the therapies and treatments that we have available to us. When you look at the different causes and what's out there, how important a factor is a female patient's weight in regard to fertility treatment? What we're finding is that it's pretty important, and their studies are not equivocal on how weight can affect fertility. What we do know is that in overweight and obese women is that their chance of conceiving is longer. We know that in obesity and infertility accounts for a high rate of ovulatory dysfunction in women. The reproductive axis is very closely linked to nutritional status. But even in ovulatory women, what we're finding, and there's some kind of very well-referenced studies, is that even in ovulatory women that there's still some degree of subfertility. Not every obese and overweight patient has infertility issues, but excess weight can delay the chances of conceiving. A couple of studies that are out there that looked at potentially fertile women is one of them looked at about 500 women who were using donor sperm, so potentially fertile women. And what they found is that there was a negative effect of obesity on their chance of pregnancy. And another huge study done in the Netherlands with about 3,000 women who came to a center in order to conceive, they looked at how many women at this center conceived within a year. And what they found is that for every BMI unit above 29, and 29 a BMI is starting to be overweight and obese, that their chance of fertility declined by about 4%, which is comparable to a year in age. What we're not sure about is if infertility affects implantation rate, pregnancy rate, and fertilization rate. Those studies haven't been reproducible, but it does affect live birth rate, and the reason is is that obesity can increase a woman's rate of miscarriage and unfortunately stillborn pregnancies. So we at infertility centers have a role not just at helping them achieve a pregnancy, but as their prenatal care providers. So we have to be sure that we go over this information with all of our patients. Well, Monica, what about the male partner's weight? Is that as important? We're finding that it is as important. It's not as well studied 
um, and not all the studies come to the same conclusions. So we know that male obesity can contribute to erectile dysfunction. Due to the body habits, it can increase the scrotal temperature. It can contribute to sleep apnea which may reset hormones in an unfavorable way. We know that where obesity is concerned, that abdominal fat, the sort of quote-unquote apple shape, is more detrimental to health outcomes and also to fertility, at which males a lot of times can suffer from. So what we're finding is that there's a convincing amount of evidence that excess body fat has an adverse effect on male hormone profiles. So it increases estrogen levels, decreases androgens such as testosterone, and these detrimentally affect sperm parameters. The incidence of oligospermia, or low sperm count, increases as BMI increases. We're just not sure about what the BMI thresholds should be, though. At what level do we really need to caution our patients about whether or not they should um, proceed? In one of the largest studies of, of Danish men, lower sperm concentration was observed in obese, overweight, and significantly underweight men. And the other um, important factor that we see is if both partners are obese, they have a higher risk of fertility problems than if only one partner is diagnosed as obese. So we know that the male contribution is there. Interestingly enough, we're also seeing some information about epigenics or the fetal origins of adult disease. And what we're finding is that when male, especially in animal studies, the male father is obese, we're finding that the offspring is more susceptible to metabolic syndrome or it's more susceptible to diseases later in life, such as obesity, hypertension, dyslipidemia, and impaired glucose tolerance. What are the neonatal risks of maternal obesity? Well, it's now pretty much known that pre-pregnancy BMI is a major determinant of pregnancy outcome. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of studies out there about pre-pregnancy BMI versus gestational weight gain. We never want to tell a pregnant woman to try to lose weight. So it's much better if we can control the pre-pregnancy BMI. There is a high risk of the majority of pregnancy complications when they look at pre-pregnancy BMI. So um, there was a meta-analysis done in 2010, and what they found is that there were basically almost every risk that they looked at in neonatal risk was increased except for preterm labor and gastroschisis. And what we see is that neurotube defects such as spina bifida and encephaly are greatly increased in obese women to the point where obese women probably need higher doses of folic acid. We know that obesity affects lipid metabolism and inflammation that may contribute to preeclampsia. Preeclampsia is a major risk factor for prematurity and it puts the mom in danger as well. And we also know, what we had discussed before with the fetal origins of adult disease, that the metabolic disturbances in obese women also have persistent and lifelong effects on the child, such as an increased risk of obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular effects, even cognitive decline, such as Alzheimer's disease. So the effects are pretty profound and long-lasting. If you're just tuning in, this is ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough, and speaking with Nurse Monica Moore, and we're talking about fertility issues. And I want you to tell us about blastocyst transfer and how it's being utilized in the fertility setting. Well, blastocyst is a five- to six-day-old embryo. It's about two to 400 cells, um, and it's the stage at which implantation takes place. So doing a blastocyst transfer gives us a couple of advantages. One is that we're able to choose the best embryo as close to implantation as possible, so hopefully we're able to transfer fewer embryos. 
The other advantage is that we can observe the first major differentiation of an embryo into two distinct cell lines. One is the inner cell mass, which becomes the early embryo, and the other is the trophoblast cells, which become the early placenta. And we have grading systems so that we can see how well they differentiate and what our embryologist thinks in her years of experience and subjective grading this chance of this blastocyst would be to become a healthy embryo. And thirdly, it actually is a good gauge of the lab quality. So if a lab is able to regularly grow embryos to the blastocyst stage, it's pretty indicative of the overall quality of the lab of the reproductive endocrine center that patients are choosing to use. So our whole goal of reproductive treatment is to achieve a singleton gestation. And the advances that we've had, I would say, in the last decade with blastocyst transfer and culture hopefully will allow us to just choose one to two embryos to transfer back. What do most current guidelines state about the number of embryos to be transferred? Well, ASRM, which is our sort of governing body in infertility, are pretty clear about what they recommend. And they also underscore the fact that the goal is to achieve a singleton pregnancy. But what they will take into account is the patient's age, what their clinical situation is, if they've done any previous cycles, such as if somebody failed multiple IVF cycles, they may be more generous in the amount of embryos that they'd be willing to transfer back. But usually what it looks as if somebody has a good prognosis and they're under 35, the ASRM guidelines suggest transferring one to two embryos back because this is a very favorable situation. And one blastocyst back, maybe two blastocysts back if the clinical situation warrants it. Once the patient gets older, they would be willing to transfer back more embryos. So in the age group of 35 to 37, two to three embryos versus two blastocysts. 38 to 40-year-olds, three to four embryos versus two blastocysts. And 41 to 42-year-olds are sort of lowest prognostic group due to their age. They'd be willing to transfer five cleavage stage or day three embryos versus three blastocysts. But What they would do is they would justify according to individual clinical conditions, the patient age, the embryo quality, and importantly, the opportunity for cryopreservation. The other biggest advancement in the reproductive endocrine setting in the past 10 years, I would say, is the use of vitrification for cryopreservation because we can freeze the embryo so quickly that the rate of surviving the freeze has gone up to about 95 to 97%. And the cryopregnancy rates are almost the same as fresh pregnancy rates. So now that we've gotten to be so good at cryopreserving embryos and thawing them, there's really no reason to transfer back so many fresh embryos in order to achieve a good pregnancy. I would say that in the combination of the good blastocyst culture and transfer would allow us to transfer less embryos back to hopefully achieve a singleton gestation. The other thing that ASRM does is they audit programs that have a high order multiple pregnancy rate that's greater than two standard deviations above the mean for all the SART reporting clinics. So they're pretty much cracking down on places that are putting large amounts of embryos back to put the women at risk just to increase their rates. What are some of the ethical considerations to be evaluated when you're discussing fetal reduction? Well, fetal reduction is incredibly emotionally charged. For some couples, it's not even an option, either ethically, religiously, etc. Um, and there might be a disagreement between partners about whether to proceed or not. You know, prevention of multiple gestations is essential by using blastocysts, by using cryopreservation. But for couples who do decide to proceed with it, the whole point of multifetal pregnancy reduction is to reduce the amount of high-order multiples. 
usually triplets or greater because they're associated with such a high pediatric mortality and, and morbidity, mainly due to premature delivery, but also a maternal morbidity. The whole goal is to decrease the rate of severe prematurity and its consequences. The problem is, is that it may increase the loss of the entire pregnancy. It doesn't completely annihilate the risks associated with multiple pregnancy, and it puts the couple at a great deal of emotional distress. Now, research shows that the initial distress can decrease over time, but the decision is usually not an easy one. It's usually not covered by insurance, and it's not a, a situation that we would want to put couples in if we can prevent it from happening. Any final points you wanted to make? I hope that we as nurses realize what an impact we can have on patient outcomes. My whole goal as a nurse is to realize what impact we can have on helping patients achieve a healthy pregnancy. Thank you for joining us, Monica Moore. It was a great conversation, and we talked about a lot of issues. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. This Clinician's Roundtable segment is sponsored by Omnia Education's first annual Fertility Nurses Forum. If you missed any of this discussion, please visit ReachMD.com.